Welcome to Unchanging Education with Dan Clemens. This is Season 2, Episode 7, Lippmann and Weil. Finishing the 40s in the Lit Review. A quick recap and mainly a consideration of remarks made by W. Lippmann and writings by and about S. Weil. So, a quick recap. Um, this inquiry takes as a historical starting off point or origin uh, with Locke in the late 1790s to Rousseau in the mid 1760s. And in that sort of is meant to connect uh, pedagogy and politics, in that there is a a claim that I make about a thematic connection between Locke and liberty and teacher-centeredness and Rousseau and equality and student-centeredness. And then there's about a 150-year jump, or I suppose you could call it a gap, going all the way then to the 1920s, where I was uh, looking at Gramsci as a surprising conservative voice in education. And then, uh, you know, from the 20s and 30s, when, when Gramsci was writing, to a, a fairly busy period in the 30s. So I talked about Stearns, and um, I, I kind of somewhat anachronistically included Russell here, who was writing in the 40s, uh, just because I, I really like his comments on Dewey and that that was um, important for our consideration of Dewey as the main student-centered figure of this time, uh, again, 1930s, and uh, Dewey's main interlocutor, Bagley. And I think I've situated Dewey and Bagley as the grandfather figures of uh, Dewey, student-centeredness, and Bagley, TC. So now I want to come to Lippmann and Weil, and, um, who are both, um, you know, producing this, the, the content I'll be discussing, circa 1940. And from here, I think I'll only have one more podcast in this general area, and I'll come up to 1950 and talk mostly about Hige and uh, also touch upon Hutchins. And that will, um, that will be the end of Season 2. And in season three, I'll move on to something that is more like a main course in this teacher versus student-centered consideration in unchanging education. And season three, um, looking ahead, is going to deal with four thinkers and, and their thoughts relevant to pedagogy. And I'm going to use the, for me, convenient acronym, THEM. So I'll be talking about THEM in season three. THEM referring to... T. T. S. Eliot, H. Hannah Arendt, E. E. D. Hirsch, and M. for Michael Oakeshott. So let me turn to Lipman here, um, much more prominent podcaster than me. Certainly, Andrew Claven uh, touched upon this in um, in a very good uh, discussion, and I'm going to make some similar points, but also. Again, trying to make some more explicit connections to this uh, this schism and this pedagogical debate in TVSC. 
So uh, Lippmann begins at the outset of his remarks in 1940, uh, Walter Lippmann, uh, and, you know, indicates his thesis that those responsible for education have progressively removed from the curriculum of studies the Western culture. That Western culture has been progressively, increasingly, but also perhaps progressively in terms of progressive politics, uh, this removal of Western culture. So, deprived of their cultural tradition, the newly educated Western men and women no longer possess in the form and substance of their own minds and spirits the ideas, the premises, the rationale, the logic, the method, the values, or the deposited wisdom, which are the genius of the development of Western civilization. So obviously Lippmann is arguing for the necessity of including Western culture and the fruits of Western culture in the curriculum. And again, those responsible for education who've progressively removed it, I think it's fair to say that this removal of Western culture from curriculum and all of the potential benefits has been sold as a gain, but ultimately is felt as a loss. That, for many reasons, but first of which, the revival of the central, continuous, and perennial culture of the Western world is needed, in the sense that every generation has to revive um, its own culture, and even to an extent play their part in the, um, in the renewal of civilization. Lippmann states, I realize quite well that this thesis constitutes a sweeping indictment of modern education. So the implication here is that modern education just wants to get rid of Western culture and thus is not invested in reviving it. And if any culture that isn't revived in some way over time, of course, will sort of fade and diminish. So, uh, very helpfully, Lippmann articulates what really is meant by the Western culture or the Western world. And he states that the creative cultural tradition of Europe and the Americas. In this tradition, our world was made. By this tradition, it must live. Without this tradition, our world like a tree cut off from its roots in the soil, must die and be replaced by alien and barbarous things. So again, the, the progressive um, education leadership um, is, in a sense, more invested in the death and replacement of, of the, the tradition that undergirds this world. And I think that that, in a way, aligns with the more political or politically explicit manifestations of student-centeredness, or that these political machinations are, in a, in a way, smuggled into uh, widely accepted educational forms by cloaking themselves as being student-centered somehow.
Okay, ominous evidence of what the official historian of Harvard University has called, quote, the greatest educational crime of the century against American youth. That is, depriving them of their classical heritage. So, Lippmann continues to unpack this heritage of the West, again, this uh, creative tradition of Europe and the Americas. Yet, the historic fact is that the institutions we cherish and now know we must defend against the most determined and efficient attack ever organized against them are the products of a culture which, as Gilson put it, is essentially the culture of Greece, inherited from the Greeks by the Romans, transfused by the fathers of the church with the religious teachings of Christianity, and progressively enlarged by countless numbers of artists, writers, scientists, and philosophers from the beginning of the Middle Ages up to the first third of the 19th century. Continuing, the classic works of this culture were the substance of the curriculum. In these schools, the transmission of this culture was held to be the end and aim of education. Continuing again, modern education, however, is based on a denial that it is necessary or useful or desirable for the schools and colleges to continue to transmit from generation to generation the religious and classical culture of the Western world. It is, therefore, much easier to say what modern education rejects than to find out what modern education teaches. It rejects and it abandons and neglects, rejects, abandons, neglects, as no longer necessary the study of the whole classical heritage of the great works of great men. And with what is that vacuum filled? Uh, so before continuing, if a, a previous form of education was predicated upon the transmission of culture as the end and aim of education, then the first step in a way is simply to just deny this and say no the transmission of this culture is not or is no longer to be the end and aim of education so Lippmann is correct in saying that this creates a vacuum and he also uses the term void right a vacuum or a void so any kind of empty or negative space where something else has to take root okay and I think he's absolutely right here in the 1940s and with, with his answer is as follows the accidental and incidental improvisations and spontaneous curiosities of teachers and students that any kind of coherent structure um, is gone because there's nothing really essential left to transmit and so uh, getting rid of all of that bulk um, it leads to Again, it's sold as having this upside of, you know, education no longer having to deliver this sort of bulky historical content and curriculum is free to move about, that it is 
can be agile and flexible um, and more contemporary parlance uh, it can be uh, responsive and relevant culturally responsive culturally relevant and uh, the way he characterizes this is that it's just it's accidental uh, in the sense that whatever people learn or don't don't learn is um, is sort of left up to chance and incidental incidental improvisations that uh, again without um, without a sort of a north star uh, to guide education uh, as would normally happen in a sort of traditional curriculum then it's it's unclear what anyone's learning and everyone is going to end up learning much different things certainly based on improvisation and spontaneous curiosities Right, so it's clear that Lippmann is describing these earliest forms of inquiry education, which I think a lot of people today, teachers in the education space, seem to think that something like inquiry is, um, you know, cutting edge. Um, but we've already seen in, in previous episodes how this is simply a return to pre-modern societies where the young are kind of left to their own devices, that it, it, it is not new in any way at all. Um, historically, it certainly precedes something that we would recognize in schooling. Um, so on the same point, the choice of the subject matter of education is left to the imagination. Again, imagination, interest, inquiry, improvisation, um, imagination is what determines what is learned and, and what is taught. Um, as if there is nothing in particular that an educated person must know. So, this is also problematic because it, again, it is explicitly not a renewal or a revival of anything, whereby we have to continually um, re-interrogate and renegotiate what are the, you know, important particulars that educated people have to have to know or to be versed in um, it simply drops and abandons the entire discussion it um, and saying you know what do we need you know our, our graduates to be able to know and to do um, how do we furnish their minds into you know becoming well-educated people that will in general be recognized as being well-educated based on the uh, based on what they're familiar with knowledgeable about and that is a difficult question, and it's certainly easier to answer. I mean, for some, it's preferable to answer these kinds of incredibly nuanced debates with just a single word and just to say nothing. There's nothing that anyone really needs to learn other than uh, whatever they wish, uh, whatever they're inclined to uh, in terms of following their imagination through improvisation their own spontaneous curiosities accidental and incidental so however the notion that the cultural tradition is no longer relevant is in fact misleading now this is part of the role of teachers is to uh, you know facilitate these bridges between great past wisdom that at first glance may seem antiquated um, and then in a way to sort of tease out these maxims 
that have universal applicability in the sense that they are timeless, not merely timely. So this notion of irrelevance, this is a pretended reason for the educational void. Right? So why, don't, why do we no longer have an obligation to teach students all of the, um, for example, all of the great things that we learn from our great teachers? Just to say it's no longer relevant. That is in many ways the fundamental argument for um, neglecting. Um, for just for setting aside the the entirety of what education has has sought to do for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, is it really about relevancy, though? Lippmann wants to question. The real reason I venture I venture to suggest is that we reject the religious and classical heritage first, because to master it requires more effort than we are willing to compel ourselves to make, and second because it creates issues that are too deep and too contentious to be faced with equanimity. We have abolished the old curriculum because we are afraid of it, afraid to face any longer in a modern democratic society the severe discipline and the deep disconcerting issues of the nature of the universe and of man's place in it and his destiny. So the problem here, um, I mean, it's basically, he's suggesting it's only a superficial justification to say, oh, well, that, the whole you know, Western cultural tradition, it's not relevant anymore. But that's, that, in a way, is how it's packaged or marketed and sold to the public. But really, it is, it's very hard to transmit culture, and it requires, it requires a lot from its teachers and a generation of teachers simply not up to the task. And part of that is that those teachers themselves need to be very well educated, um, that they need to have been students of learning Western culture itself. And they also need to demand from their students um, you know, a high degree of effort to, to even attempt to master the difficulty um, of of the canon uh, itself, and of culture uh, defined in the Arnoldian sense of the best that has ever been you know thought and thought written expressed, and he says that basically, I mean he uses the word deep here twice, not specifically in terms of um, you know as one of the virtues of the Western cultural tradition. But I think that I would want to use that word in that term, and that um, there that it is deep, and so it, it requires a very, I mean, it's very difficult to explore and and to, to to comprehend, let alone to understand, and that there is just there, there's a fear of all of the, you know, of all the complexity and nuances of the the thinking and the developments there, but also a fear that it's not going to be possible to get students or to maintain students' interest in it. Um, so basically he's saying that this is not because of relevance at all. Um, you know, he doesn't go so far, but we could go so far as to say no one actually thinks that, you know, uh, Socrates is irrelevant. It's that 
that's just the most convenient way to dismiss it. Uh, the real truth is just that it's, it's too hard uh, to have the kinds of teachers required for this kind of learning. This uh, apprenticeship with the great ideas of history. What I want to say, and, and uh, I guess not to condescend, but in a way to sort of update this, um, that over, you know, 75 years, that, that Lippmann is right, writing and, and speaking at his time, that there is a kind of, a, at first, just a, a simple negation to saying, well, this transmission of culture, um, that's no longer the end and aim of education, or that's no longer our telos. And there's this, this initial vacuum that, you know, that's, that's irrelevant, so that's no longer the, the end or aim or telos. And, you know, th this is sort of a, a shrug that it's just, it's no longer a good telos. So, due to its irrelevancy. But this is really just the first step, right, um, that I... Certainly, wouldn't wouldn't be fair to expect Lippmann to anticipate, but I think that this initial vacuum has mutated into a, a new and different kind of, or or with this kind of militancy, that now this is no longer just a simple negation, but a total inversion, that you know it, it doesn't simply dispute the claim that no, I mean education is not about transmitting culture anymore. And this, this sort of second phase or second stage of this is actually to take the opposite position, um, basically to say that not transmitting uh, or, or ensuring the complete non-transmission of culture, that is the aim of education. That's the, the militant mutation. Um, not because this Western tradition is just not relevant or not good, um, but that it's actually evil. And going perhaps just one step further to say that the new end or aim of education is actually just the death of this Western cultural tradition, and that that is the, that is the legacy that we want to, to advance, which is basically the, the self-same to cultural revolution. Or Marxist revolution. Lippmann also emphasizes the importance of delayed gratification um, that transcends immediate needs and present desires. Something that has to be gained or learned. That something that is really uh, that it, it requires both parenting and formal like schooling. The parenting and schooling together alone can form a kind of a cohesive education uh, or an encompassing education that is required in order to, to, to meet this most essential need for any civilized person um, and something that we recognize as being so predictive not only of success but of happiness. Those who cannot transcend their immediate needs those who cannot transcend their present desires are, in a way, doomed. And it simply isn't appropriate for parents or for teachers to doom the next generation. It also dooms us as well. 
the vital core of the civilized tradition of the West is, by definition, excluded from the curriculum. Again, as I say, first merely excluded, uh, and then I think later, again, that it's much more actively attacked rather than merely sidelined. So, um, in turning to some sort of, how do we approach a solution to this problem of these um, undesirable changes in education? And, you know, the only solution is simply to meet the challenge. And the challenge is as it was, that, you know, through education, teachers have to cultivate the Western tradition and transmit it to the young, proving to them that this tradition is no mere record of the obsolete fallacies of the dead, but that it is a deposit of living wisdom. And this brings back this idea of this, you know, that that the content and that that curriculum is so deep, um, but there's no need for students to be afraid uh, of this learning, you know, like someone like Shakespeare, Shakespearean sonnets that can provoke a kind of a, a sense of fear and helplessness in students. Um, even though there may be some reverence, um, some appreciation of the depth, that there's still this, this fear, this, the difficulty of the challenge. But against this fear is the teacher um, who is who is basically there to act as a guide, right? So there's no need to be fearful of the depths of the content because you have this teacher okay, here to guide you as the student. And even though, yes, there is, in order to really master a lot of these most difficult things, and, you know, for example, literature and philosophy, the teacher has a role to make this severe discipline more palatable somehow, right? And and it's uh, it is certainly one of the challenging aspects, but it's it's something that I think every great teacher is able to do, right? That yes, there is severe discipline in terms of um, not just time. I mean, there's but of attention both in terms of quantity and quality, right? That there is a, a considerable investment that has to be. Uh, made on the part of the student, but there's also, you know, the teacher is also reminding um, and even highlighting the the benefits and and making the journey as uh, as enjoyable as possible, or at least making the severe discipline that's required for success in a frankly difficult you know course of study, uh, making severe discipline more palatable, as strange as it may sound. And all also, in perhaps mostly in, in indirect or passive ways, almost constantly reminding students, um, to the extent that also they, they come to this realization themselves, that this pursuit of the, this mastery of this tradition is one of the highest joys in life. And so eventually I think that this such a course of study um, it becomes almost self-justifying and that you know that the 
that the joy and the pursuit of this mastery and that the the payoffs and the rewards of of all the work that goes into it and and so much of that speaks directly to the role that the teacher has but certainly one of the most important qualifications is that you know the teacher really knows a lot and we absolutely have to safeguard an education against anyone who is not prepared to guide students through such you know difficult and complex content but masks this inability um, in some kind of argument uh, some appeal to relevancy or to responsiveness so having renounced the idea that the purpose of education is to transmit Western culture thus there is a cultural vacuum and this cultural vacuum was bound to produce in fact it has produced progressive disorder so if we don't meet this challenge and attempt this kind of solution then we're just going to see more and more disorder it's even interesting that he uses the phrase progressive disorder uh, which I think is apropos And I think that he also situates education, again, going back to this notion of uh, delayed gratification, as, as set up against, um, you know, this, this relationship between uh, reason and appetites and, and which is going to rule which. And that education has this function of, you know, reason as the ruler of the appetites. They have reduced reason to the role of servant to man's appetites so I think this is um, you know I think that really historically we should we have this rise of reason over the you know appetitive aspect of the soul so to speak and that this is you know in the same way that if you really look at a completely unstructured uh, SC education that it's just a return to pre-modern childhood um, that in the same way it's a return to appetites as being in the chief role against reason or as being the more forceful steed to think of the the chariot the working philosophy of the emancipated democracies is as a celebrated modern psychologist has put it that quote the instinctive impulses determine the end of all activities so this is also just um, modern education even punting on this most essential thing as mentioned about delayed gratification um, you know that, that reason has to be the ruler over appetites and um, and this referring to a celebrated modern psychologist this is just again referencing um, you know in, in a fairly early way uh, a, a concern certainly that Stearns also shared about therapeutic culture um, that is therapeutic is perhaps the nicer term for it um, that it's hedonistic right to do without will um, that that is that is the law the reduction of reason to an instrument of each man's personal career 
must also mean that education is emptied of its content. So when we instrumentalize education, that all the things that you learn are things just to help you to have a career and to make money and be successful. And losing a sense of the intrinsic value of education, this, uh, again, I think of another phrase from, from Stearns, is that it, it serves to dampen the ardor, right? that we lose the luster that education ought to have in terms of the appeal to every individual of becoming, in a way, a, a well-educated or a cultivated person. Um, you know, a, a gentleman, a lady, or a, a, a man, or a person of letters, learned. That I think that that has tremendous appeal to people um, still. But um, schools may simply not... Um, may choose not to leverage that interest and nevertheless fail to educate people, um, to well-educate people who are, uh, who desperately want it. So again, um, but this, this notion of emptying of content makes me want to go back to these, um, these, these two different manifestations of vacuum or void. So we have the, the first one, which basically just says, nope, that's no longer the end of education. Transmitting Western culture is not what we're doing anymore. Um, just as if it opens up a, a space to do something else that is not really articulated. And in the first version of it, it is this, uh, this kind of free and open play of you know, spontaneous activity. But that in a way that that itself just as a, as a negation, as an absence, it isn't robust enough to, to sustain itself in this position and that something else moves in and that it's not just an emptying of the content, but the second iteration is something like anti-content. That it's not just a matter that we don't want to transmit something, um, it's that we want not to transmit it that it is akin to a, a scorched earth policy, that we want to end even the possibility of the transmission rather than simply, um, you know, again, in, in this first phase, just um, resigning our obligation to actually transmit it. And then this second, again, this militant mutation uh, upon the first iteration into the second that it's our duty to, um, to raise and erase Western tradition, and and based on a familiar um, a familiar justification because it's evil, that somehow it's the root of all evil, um, and so stamping out this tradition also has this virtue to it, ostensibly. So this is, in some ways, fairly high-minded, we might say. Um, so towards the end of his remarks here, Lippmann makes the, the ultimate practical case for a traditional or conservative approach in education that I think it's so intuitive, but unfortunately it is probably not fully appreciated or, or stated enough. So benefiting from, a, from, the, from the past, from tradition, um, 
they're able to do advanced experiments, which increase knowledge, because they do not have to repeat the elementary experiments. It is tradition which brings them to the point where advanced experimentation is possible. This is the meaning of tradition. This is why a society can be progressive only if it conserves its tradition. I don't think, I'm not familiar with anyone making this point so well. And in this confused moment where we think of progressive and conservative as being antithetical, um, this is, uh, this sort of nullifies this kind of, the, the, a false term, the false terms of a false debate that the only way that we can be genuinely progressive in the sense of advancing, improving, making progress over, you know, in history, over and across time, um, as, a, as a collective, as a historical continuity. We have to conserve tradition because tradition is this collection of things that have and have not worked, right? I mean, this obviously uh, indicates this cliche about those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And Lippmann himself will get to the standing on the shoulders of giants um, just in the next paragraph. The only way to be genuinely progressive in terms of actually being interested in real progress um, in a more neutral sense, not merely progressing to some foreordained historical endpoint um, we have to conserve tradition in order to be progressive. Okay, next. The notion that every problem can be studied as such with an open and empty mind, without preconception, without knowing what has already been learned about it, must condemn men to a chronic childishness. Chronic childishness, um, I think, encapsulates the worst outcomes in education right now. And precisely, even even educators today, despite, you know, such a, an eloquent and articulate warning from so long ago, they would think that something like an open and empty mind would sound very appealing to them, that it, it would almost seem to exemplify an ideal pupil somehow. Um, but, I mean, it, it, it's anathema to TC, uh, whereby we want minds to be um, disciplined and full, full of, of knowledge. So, um, before I, I go to the, to the next part here, I want to just emphasize this point about discipline as having these two distinct senses of the word. There's the obvious personal sense, you know, where discipline is kind of this, this self-control. But there's also discipline in terms of um, a, a focus and, and also a confinement in the sense of, uh, like, the disciplines that one might study or choose from in a university. And the discipline in this sense is specifically against being open. The discipline in this sense is a narrowing. And so you know, open is almost only seen in its uh, charitable interpretation, um, you know, much the same way as other words like critical and even a word like change. 
change now always means something good, as if it's impossible to change something for the worse. And open again um, just has this. It just has this flavor. It's just been coated with something that seems somehow syrupy and sweet. But what's really required um, through a, a discipline of learning is a narrowing um, that allows one to to really focus on something specific, which is where most of the most productive thinking can occur. So again, not the sense of, you know, a mind needs to be empty, because really these words like open and empty, an open and empty mind, that it would just be, that the SC orientation would be inclined to associate these words with freedom. And again, that's based on a particular understanding of freedom, but probably more accurately of mere inclination rather than something like liberty. Again, we don't want minds to be empty. Even if that means empty of, um, you know, any sort of preconception, we want minds to be actively full of learning. Okay, the men of any generation, as Bernard of Schaff put it, are like dwarfs seated on the shoulders of giants. If we are to see more things than the ancients, and things more distant, it is due neither to the sharpness of our sight, nor the greatness of our stature, but simply because they have lent us their own. This is the case for, you know, conservative traditional type ideas as being, as maintaining, or at least recovering their their position in education, that it it inbuilds a safeguard against the problem of chronic childishness. Because whatever a well-educated person is, it is not a chronic child. An adult that is indistinguishable from a child is not someone I think that we would think of as being particularly well-educated. There is something uniquely adult and mature about education or educatedness. And anyway, continuing on, just continuing to hammer at this exact same point about the necessity that the only way we can make progress is through a connection with tradition, with the past. For individuals do not have the time, the opportunity, or the energy to make all the experiments and to discern all the significance that have gone into the making of the whole heritage of civilization. Really what he means is we don't have time to remake everything, right? If we go back to year zero and start redoing everything again, um, you know, ignoring all of the ways that, um, that, that, that a knowledge of the past, it expedites everything, that we don't have to go over the same ground again. The sense of, well, let's go back to year zero, some sort of uh, post-World War III reality and do everything all over again. There's just no reason to do it. Continuing, in developing knowledge, men must collaborate with their ancestors. Otherwise, they must begin, not where their ancestors arrived, but where their ancestors began. If they exclude the tradition of the past from the curricula of the schools, they make it necessary for each generation to repeat the errors, 
rather than benefit by the successes of its predecessors. So this kind of uh, a militantly anti-traditional, anti-conservative, anti-past education, it cannot succeed in you know, combating ignorance. It's the institutionalization. It's the assurance of ignorance. It, it, it's unrecognizable from any robust understanding of education itself. It's education turned against itself. It is education as anti-education. Simply, it's just, it's incoherent. It's nonsense. I mean, and it's so intuitive because we know that, you know, things that are passed on to us, they help us to save time, and that makes everything so much more efficient. I mean, it's... The idea that we need to make a case for not duplicating all of the blunders of the past, um, it's hard to imagine anyone would actually want you to make that case in good faith. Okay, coming just to the end here now. Having cut him off from the tradition of the past, modern, secular education has isolated the individual. This is the uprooted and incoherent modern free man. That... Mr. Bertrand Russell has so poignantly described okay, this um, isolated, uprooted, incoherent, free, modern individual is as if on a raft in flickering light on a dark ocean with, you know, facing a chill blast in loneliness amid hostile forces struggling alone. In a word, this new man deprived from education, frankly, is, um, as we might expect, unenlightened. Anyone who is uneducated um, is almost certainly going to be ignorant. Now, certainly there are autodidacts who can teach themselves, and but that just means they have no what we call a formal schooling, and they can still be certainly extremely well educated because they educate themselves. But these individuals are rare. And if we just leave everyone's education to themselves, um, it's hard to imagine what, what education or schooling is for. Um, or even without the support of schooling, how parenting is even supposed to succeed. Every other generation of teachers and of parents have both been able to rely on that other cohort to reinforce Right, teachers reinforcing parenting and parents reinforcing teaching. So, uh, this is what the free man, in reality, merely the freed and uprooted and dispossessed man, to struggle alone. And so he gives up his freedom and surrenders his priceless heritage. So, this is the... the the steep costs of, you know, of a, of a kind of a double loss where you think, oh, um, you know, the most obvious and kind of famous formulation of this is, you know, let's give up our liberty in order for safety. And then you end up with neither. Just the same thing here. Well, let's give up our priceless heritage in order to get more freedom, right? We can, you know, free up the curriculum by abandoning all of its content, emptying it. 
Um, and then you ended up with neither a priceless heritage nor freedom. This is, I mean, this is, uh, this also speaks to why any a conservative tendency or a conserving conservative or conservational tendency is so important. Say, well, wait a minute. Before we do this trade-off that you're keen on doing, let's consider the worst-case possibility, for example, that we end up with neither. Okay? That we're going to trade this in to get that. Well, what if we get nothing? It's, um, it's the same as... Uh, it's similar to something like, you know, buying a lemon. Let's trade in this amount of money for this car, and then the car doesn't work, and then now you no longer have the money, and you also don't have a car that you thought you were buying. So, in a sense, and coming back to this notion of, of being unenlightened, that we are, in a sense, duty-bound to reject this educational turn. Even though we've basically already turned completely into student-centeredness, it's still not quite fully complete. And that we can't fail to okay it's important to understand that the most i think it's important to entertain perhaps the most uncharitable interpretation of this educational turn and it releases this this question or problem is that is this a matter of failure uh is education failing to enlighten people through its own uh incompetency somehow or we could say this is not, education is not failing to enlighten people through a failure at all, but as a perverse success. That strangely something has happened, something um, so seemingly devious that education is no longer in the business of, you know, combating ignorance and, um, you know, serving enlightenment somehow. Enlightenment here, more of a, more of a, a Western European sense rather than an Eastern uh, mystical one. And but it has to be considered that this is a perverse success. Okay, so I want to move on to Simone Weil. Um, this uh, this should be uh, a shorter section. So um, the way that I want to situate Simone Weil here is, again, thinking in terms of TVSC, um, attention is the most important idea here. Um, but thinking in terms of um, Simone Weil as it, as it, in the TC camp, uh, what might this criticism be against you know, SC, which thinks of itself as, as doing and doing a good job and of being good that I think that there is this kind of um, a very short cycle in student-centeredness whereby uh, the educator will attempt to rouse the curiosity of the student and the student will do an ostensibly creative task and that is like and then that loop is closed only to lead to rousing a new curiosity and doing a new creative task but and I think a lot of educators would recognize that as being, um, as almost being an ideal in a way. 
but we have to ask how deep is this experience and how much attention is required and how much attention is being given to this process. So attention is important, um, not just in the sense that uh, Simone Weil discusses it, but also in the sense of it is really one of the, it's one of the timely um, problems in education as well as a timeless problem in the sense that, you know, we're dealing with, frankly, I think an unprecedented kind of distraction in the form of, you know, entertainment and personal devices, you know, vis-a-vis -vis smartphones, and internet and social media. Of course, there have always been distractions. It's impossible to say that, you know, now young people are distracted by things in, in a way that they never were. Um, but I do think that um, even though I'm certainly aware of the same argument that, you know, everyone thought that the radio would, would be the end of the young people and then TV and on and on, that every, every age has its own, you know, um, its own new technological form that uh, ostensibly, you know, threatens to be the end of everything. Um, but I think in a way I cannot resist the temptation to be a creature of my own age and say that there is something perhaps uniquely troubling about this new this new competitor for attention so but here's what I really want to say um, first of all it becomes very difficult for education to uh, penetrate the minds because in order to to be you know really powerful it has to capture attentive imagination and if you can't get attention and imagination, you know, education can't be, um, can't be deeply or profoundly felt. That if it can't move students because they literally aren't listening or paying attention at all. Well, I mean, put it put it a different way. Um, that curiosity, the curiosity I think is required for education is being constantly drained right and that anything that you might be interested in or curious and you can kind of learn something about and then it it sort of dissipates right that this um this structure that education requires in that a, a curiosity be becomes somehow um deep and sustained uh rather than you know something like a curiosity um arises or is aroused and then it goes away again that there's some perhaps a new challenge here about curiosity and, and, and attention um, that it doesn't seem to pool into a robust amount um, and therefore it doesn't really take on a life of its own or even just that this is happening less and less that this is a, a trend that, that it's, it's on the, the decline and what is the role of schools in this? And so we can ask, have schools, in a way, stopped enforcing attention? And put another way, are schools now, in a sense, accepting inattention as a new natural fact, or even as a new technological fact? Um, now, it's a, kind of a separate issue, but it's worth repeating that, you know, kids are being diagnosed and medicated for attention spans being in deficit but in a way um, 
education and specifically schools and even the you know baseline requirements of discipline that are that have been required by schools that this is in a way the one of the chief weapons that civilization has had against something like you know chronic inattention or inattentiveness and we're going to see this is an important emphasis for Simone Weil about developing what she calls a regime of attention uh, and how important it is but the point here I think is that for TC students come to school uh, at a young age of course and spend much of their young lives in schools and that the school has an obligation to cultivate attention that they have to um, that they're gradually expected to be able to uh, devote more and more sustained uh, high quality attention so at the end of their education they're uh, I sometimes like to say just putting it in these terms that they're able to pay attention to something that is you know quote-unquote boring for a long period of time maybe just because it's an important problem that requires sustained effort and attention um, but is completely dull and there is potentially a unique threat that under this new SC model that there's an increased acceptance or tolerance that all these people are coming to school without an attention span and that we have to operate within the confines of teaching students that have no attention span. So how can we compensate for the fact that students are unable to pay attention? Or how can we obtain uh, attention in some sort of artificial or medicated way? And again, it's a dereliction of duty in developing a regime of attention. So put just in a slightly different way if schools demand less attention it doesn't develop in pupils and then the deficit may be medicated uh, but anyway responsibility is alleviated from the school uh, and then schools are forced to operate that is educate in a situation of low attention and thus aspire to less achievement and lower standards if the students today are less attentive than ever before um, and attention is, uh, is is required for academic excellence then there's no way to expect academic excellence because they're missing this one of these chief ingredients of attention but the difference is that education has up you know I think until recently always known that it plays this role in developing attention that it can't simply accept a lack of attention as as is so we can say that it is a great crime right this lack of of discipline um, or um, or a lack of disciplined attention if education accepts low attention as is the other th side to this threat is again that education ceases to be an equalizing force in society public education as having this role of equalizer um, in in terms of upward mobility 
and that some, even if schools no longer require the development of attention, um, some will still develop a, a, a rich or robust regime of attention uh, without it, and those people are more likely to succeed precisely because of, well, in spite of education, not because of it, because of other uh, possibilities um, that are open or available to them. And so those who are able to get what education no longer provides, those able to get it elsewhere, um, they can escape this doom. But those who most rely upon public education for the essential things to be able to succeed later in life um, are the ones that are most affected. So, low attention span. Is this just a facticity of kids today that schools have to accommodate? Or, in a sense, is low attention actually in a kind of an education onset epidemic, right? That education is no longer playing its role, right? That especially, you know, at, at young or early stages of development, that um, discipline has to sort of be demanded in some sense, that there's some strictness whereby, um, you know, it's discipline towards attention, at least as a habit of attention, is externally enforced until it is sort of taken up, um, you know, by the individual uh, and where it's no longer merely a habit, but it becomes a trait. And it, it becomes sort of internalized in a sense. People will pay attention, um, you know, because of the benefits that it gives. So even in, you know, one of my... Um, experiences in my career, early career, was uh, a very strange status quo um, of high schoolers, actually grade 12 students, who, you know, in my sense of what I observed, handing over their toys begrudgingly uh, before a lesson, and then, you know, sort of eagerly, if not greedily, taking them back, right, these smartphone devices. And we delude ourselves into thinking that any educating has occurred, right? That you've simply removed this chief, you know, distraction. And all the while, during this removal, that they're just thinking about getting it back, right? Now, maybe certainly there are some moments of attention that occur, but there's just something in that whole general structure um, that is troubling. Now, it's hard to truly educate in that kind of situation, but certainly that some discipline has occurred, right, by removing a distraction and, you know. But really, it's, it's a kind of training, and it's, it doesn't quite meet the level of schooling that, that we would want to see, certainly in high schools, that it's somehow sub-educational. Okay. So, coming a little bit more into Simone Weil, what has really changed? Um, and there are basically, um, we can think about three things that happen in education. That education begins with a desire to know. And that desire to know is applied through, number two, an effort of attention. And then three, waiting. 
waiting is a Simone Wiles term. I mean, I think that patience um, might uh, might suit a, a modern listener a little bit more. But anyway, thinking about this move from first uh, a desire to know as applied through an effort of attention, this might sound like the, the effort and interest problem. Um, but I think um, we, we should take an optimistic stance in thinking about um, this desire to know. And I think we should start with the assumption that actually everyone has a desire to know something. Uh, that everyone, you know, wants to know or wants to become knowledgeable. I mean, it's going to be all sorts of different things. But, um, but in general, I think that everyone already possesses a desire to know. That you know, perhaps the simplest and best way to put this is that by and large, children are very curious. They don't always, you know, this curiosity of childhood doesn't always manifest in inquisitive studentship. Um, but very often it does. And so this is applied through, I think, only at first an effort of attention. Before, again, before a more uh, robust and internalized attention uh, takes root. And the other interesting thing here is, is waiting, right, or patience. So I think we, we want to start by assuming this desire to know um, and then meet it with attention and then waiting or patiently waiting. And in the most pessimistic uh, formulation, that these are all, in a way, absent, um, in, in SE, um, that if they are all absent, really, frankly, educators have no hope of success. If there's no desire to know, and uh, thus no desire to know as applied through an effort of attention, but if there's no effort of attention, it's hard to even conceive of how learning can be possible. But again, um, is this... Um, or if there is a real decline in attention, um, is that just a problem that education has to kind of deal with? Or is it a problem that education is actually creating for itself? That education is itself has to play a role in the cultivation of attention. And so education can't say, well, we can't really educate as well as we might because of a lack of attention. The lack of attention is partly due to failures of education. It is not some condition education hopelessly finds itself in. Can't say that education is the victim of a generation of students unable to pay attention. Education has to has to cultivate attention, has to find a way to do it. If it doesn't, then it's then it's not education. It's 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 education. Uh, I don't know by another name. So what's what draws me most to Simone Weil, I should take a step back here, is this sense of something kind of um, there's a sense of a, something very slow and very calm about what happens and how learning occurs of a desire to know and an effort of attention and waiting rather than some really busy, bustling, chaotic, 
activities interest-based project inquiry uh, type amalgamation of SC. And so that's what draws me to while as a as kind of a potential source for TC inspiration. So um, let me get into some of the difficult stuff here for someone while something in education interestingly happens that will make the collective dissolve and that um, that one becomes a kind of um, this is similar to a formulation that Oakshot has mentioned about you know that we you escape all these hot allegiances of the world in education and that you can kind of become uh, more of a, a singular entity so this the the collective and all of the demands that are placed upon the individual can dissolve and that the student can enter into a kind of a sacred or secret um, space and the key here is that attention is a general way of being and it refers to the global attentiveness of the individual and I think the importance here is that attention in this sense for a while is not single serve it's not as if you're paying attention to something that is itself a distraction from something else it is attention as a permanent noun being not as a verb doing and that this deeper sense of attention is is requisite so it may not be clear what's meant by noun being and verb doing um, I didn't realize it sounds Heideggerian but that attention is something that has to be uh, permanent and it is uh, it has to be something like a way of being and that it's almost like a state um, that one enters into nothing quite so dramatic as a trance um, but something that is certainly distinct from something that you do or something that you pay and I'll talk a little bit more about pay and paying attention um, but it isn't just um, you know some some intentional forceful some some sort of active thing uh, that you have to do and that like like you have a finite uh, resource a finite amount you have a reservoir of attention then once it all gets paid um, then it's gone it has to be replenished somehow uh, that this is a almost man, I mentioned trance and, and it, it is almost more mystic not in the sense of um, well perhaps it is in a sense of some sort of oneness with the universe uh, but just in a, in, a much, in a much smaller you know proportion a regime of attention is an apprenticeship okay and so it, we need to think of attention not in terms of something that is paid um, but one has to be very patient in uh, this slow and gradual um, I mean this almost makes it sound um, you know somewhat arithmetic right that you are able to pay so much attention to something for a certain amount of time and just through exercise um, that you're able to pay more and more attention but again students do not pay attention as if it is a finite resource that depletes okay um, but 
through attentiveness and it's an attentiveness that somehow sustains itself um, and the idea here I think is that when you are able to really pay attention to something that you start to discover what is interesting about it on whatever level that may be and so then it starts to maintain and sustain and um, the more attention develops the more it's able to redevelop itself so again it's more of like a state that is entered into rather than a resource that is paid so that's why it's more like a being than a doing so to speak and again, I stated, it's not like entering into a trance of, you know, some deep attention. But strangely, you know, it is almost like that. We cannot talk ourselves into it, okay? Um, really, for example, really to change requires an apprenticeship, uh, she says. And this includes also a bodily component, that there is something physical about attention too rather than just a, a choice or a decision that you can make. And one of these reasons, I think, is perhaps one major issue that is perhaps not of very much philosophical interest, but um, students who don't sleep at night, if they're up all night, you know, um, in front of a screen, whether it's for just, you know, social media or whether it's, uh, you know, surfing the Internet, scrolling through pages and walls or or if it's gaming, video games. Um, this bodily component of attention that, you know, someone who is sleep-deprived is not capable of high-quality attention. Um, certainly, it's always possible some kind of mind-over-matter uh, type resolve, but for young people, for children who don't sleep and then they're forced to pay attention, it's almost... I mean, it's hyperbolic to say that it's, you know, tantamount to torture. Of course, it isn't torture. Um, but it certainly can be experienced as torturous. To be in a situation where you have to pay attention when you can barely keep your eyes open. Right? So, but attention is, you know, has to be part of an entire regime of attention. Um, that again, it has to be this large and expansive capacity. Uh, again, regime, again, suggests that it's not just some innate thing, that every, everyone is born with a foreordained attention span, and uh, that's all you're ever going to have. Of course not. It's because an apprenticeship can change. Um, it, it can change our... Basically, it can, it can change our relationship to, to, to some aspect of reality. The more we try to fit education into the student world, again, in a student-centered sense, um, the more we try to fit education into the student world, the more we fail to initiate the student into a new world. Okay, so what does this mean? Um, by trying to fit education into the student's world, I think that this is what's meant when people talk about relevance and responsiveness. Okay, the education has to be relevant and responsive. Uh, I think that this is, in a sense, a code for the fact that, um, strangely, it's about making education smaller. Okay, that education has to fit into the student's world as it exists when they come to school. 
that it it widens, expands, enlarges the the student world, um, or you know the the kind of individual mind that the student brings with them, and then again tries to fit education into that. Okay, what we need to do, and this is this relates to this notion of attention again, is we have to initiate the student into a new world, in school or through school, and that this is an invitation that has with it certain obligations and that part of this initiation into the new world of you know the some something like a world of ideas that it requires attention that that is in a way the price of admission but certainly earlier years of like in early education it's not really a, an invitation to the life of the mind but it's a, it's the preparation and chief amongst those preparations and now we always think about skills and outcomes but really developing your attention to the utmost that is the thing that is going to make the difference and be the decisive factor of your successes later on so the more we try to fit education into the student's world the more we fail to initiate the student into a new world again outside themselves so this is invitation, not delivery. TC is all about invitation. SC is all about delivery. So we have to invite students into a new world rather than deliver something to their extant world. That education does not participate and their experience as it currently exists. It's an invitation into a new type of experience. Put another way, education, student-centered education may be predicated on delivering education and by you know, provoking attention in order to deliver education. But no, um, TC, we know that we can only invite students into an education. And we also know that attention probably, at first, has to be demanded, uh, even through discipline, first. Because attention is the ultimate pre-requirement for all learning. But also, attention is ultimately a choice. But we just have to guide students to making the choice to pay attention as much as possible. Um, incentivizing attention as much as possible. So when I'm making these TVSC distinctions, you'll notice sometimes I say, you know, education is not about this, it's about that. But, um, so what, what I wanted to say was education is not about delivering education by provoking attention. Okay? That really we can only invite students, um, we can only invite them into being educated. So again, education, TC, it's, it's more of an invitation. Um, whereas SC is meant to be a delivery. Even if we have to trick them into getting their attention through, uh, you know, entertaining, entertaining ways with, uh, you know, media forms and with, you know, videos and pictures and colors and whatever else. So uh, going back to this, you know, delivering to the student world by fitting education there uh, or inviting into some uh, new world or initiating. We end up trying merely to furnish the childhood world 
the pop culture world, fitting education into a landscape that begins as uneducated. And so, in that way, we really go nowhere. We should not be meeting kids where they are. We should be taking them somewhere grand. And if teachers are not up to the task of taking minds on great adventures and thought, acting as leaders, possessing expertise, they have failed. Again, I, I need to keep making these caveats of really early year education and parenting, which is obviously so important. Um, but again, you might not think of, you know, taking kindergartners on great adventures of thought. But at the very least, you're, you know, it's, it's all of the, the foundations um, for, for being able to do so. I don't mean to condescend, um, you know, early childhood education at all. Um, so anyway, either either doing this or preparing them for this, and thus, by extension, still doing it. Preemptively deciding that the trip is not worthwhile, is not their domain to decide. So saying, well, you know, all the learning that they might get by having some, you know, big expansive attention span and, you know, for example, being able to, you know, study Beowulf or whatever else, that stuff isn't important anyway, so why lay the foundations for that? So we can see that any change in any level of education affects everything else. And for teachers, again, and thinking of uh, you know, going back to Lippmann, about you know whether we need to be transmitting Western culture or not, preemptively deciding that the trip into some you know uh, Western cultural learning, uh, literary, philosophically, or otherwise, is not worthwhile. Um, so why bother laying the foundations and why bother trying? Frankly, to a teacher, it's not their domain to decide. It is their historical purpose and not one they can abandon or refuse. Again, just this, this importance of transmission of one, from one generation to another. And the things that are required to make it possible, such as attention. Okay, continue with while. Allowing grace to appear is a matter of cultivating our capacity for attention. Okay, so cultivating our capacity for attention is the only thing that can allow for the appearance of grace. And this is a, a commentary upon Weil. Weil's work suggests that the development of attention ought to be considered a key aim of education. Another commentator says that it is the key aim of education. Weil maintains, moreover, that attention is also the only thing most needed by those who are afflicted. Although the main focus of the, the, this given chapter and discussion is higher education, Wiles' notion of attention has relevance for pedagogical and curriculum discussions at all levels of study. So, attention is extremely important for Weil, and uh, it's, it's relevant um, for all levels of study, uh, K-12, beyond, before. Okay. So there is a sense that in teacher-centeredness, students are in a passive, receptive state, and that's a bad thing. But I think, again, this is one of the reasons that Weil is interesting for this um, debate. It is in this silent state only that grace can appear, that inspiration can appear, because it is the state of deep and pure attention. The way education's prejudices disdain this state of being 
Um, well, it looks like someone's just sitting there. They must be bored. How boring is this classroom? But they might be in a state of, you know, uh, enlightenment, you know? Um, or some sort of, like, singular state of, you know, like, just looking at someone who is physically stationary and deciding that this must be a boring classroom, it's just... It's really a ridiculous prejudice that SC has and is even boastful of. This state of education, this, sorry, this state of being tells us the extent to which educators foolishly take such pride in rank edutainment. Right, so a classroom where people are up and moving around, there must be lots of learning happening rather than people, you know, sitting and looking and listening and they might have you know, really thoughtful, you know, expressions on their faces, they might obviously be deeply engaged and deep in thought um, with, with whatever the topic is. But walking by, looking in the window, it might just seem like, oh, what a boring traditional classroom. A deep and pure regime of attention with attendant silence and grace that lead to true inspiration and generative, not terminal creativity are not boring as generations of SC teachers falsely believe. So the important thing here is that, that you develop the conditions for a mind to have these moments of clarity, inspiration, and, you know, true creativity. Not moments that are not some sort of terminal creativity, okay? where you just artificially tell someone to make something or to write something. Um, we have to understand that merely making something or just putting words on paper in, in some sort of unstructured, free verse way, this does not rise to the level of creation. It's not a manifestation of creativity, um, at, at least for a while, obviously, because you can, you can make something without attention. Like anything that you do inattentive, like if you're barely even interested in what you're doing, it would be difficult for that to be considered a work of art. Weil argues that the development of attention is the underlying goal of all school study, even if this is not acknowledged or recognized. This is important. I'll, re I'll say it and then I'll repeat it. Most school tasks, she suggests, have their own intrinsic interest, and children may declare their love of particular subjects, or that they don't like others. But underpinning all of these activities is the need to develop the power of attention. That that's really what we're doing. Um, you know, with, with almost all education in a way, is at one time, sure, we want them to be learning about, you know, the, the subject, the topic in question, but we're also preparing them for everything else that follows that um, by developing and further developing and refining and honing their attention. That it is an environment that demands and even to an extent imposes that requires attention. And the more, um, you know, high attention type situations 
and environments that you're in, uh, the more attention you're going to develop. Right? If you're always in situations where you can simply choose not to pay attention, then you will never develop much of an attention span. Okay, so just repeating again. Most school tasks, she suggests, Simone Weil, have their own intrinsic interest, and children may declare their love of particular subjects. But underpinning all of these activities is the need to develop the power of attention. Students should, to be sure, attempt to complete a task correctly and well. But the deeper purpose underlying all such efforts is the development of the habit and power of attention. And I discussed earlier, I'm, I make a distinction between habit and trait. Um, that by developing the habit of the power of attention, and that by continuing to develop this habit, like any other habit, um, it eventually transforms into a trait insofar as it becomes a part of you, not just of something you do, a habit is something you do, but into something that you have and as a smaller part of all that you are, that you become attentive. It's, uh, you know, it's not as though you just check a box and then you get it and you have it forever, but we habituate attention in order to cultivate the trait of attention. And I think beyond that, um, yeah, this is, I think, uh, kind of a familiar, you know, psychological triumvirate, um, you know, from the habit to the trait into the character. Then it becomes like that's uh, sort of the deepest level, so to speak. Okay, no, attention actually is not a forced application, uh, at least not in its final expression. Attention is not stiff, tight, or contracted. It is not tiring. Attention is not tiring. It is apart from the willpower needed for study. That there's a distinction between attention and the willpower needed for study. Desire, pleasure, and joy in the work are needed. As Weil puts it, quote, 20 minutes of concentrated, untired attention is infinitely better than three hours of the kind of frowning application that leads us to say with the sense of duty done, I have worked well. And this suggests uh, some comments that Descartes has made on the need for leisure to do philosophy. So, coming back to all these uh, of attention and these other traits that are all a part of Wiles' understanding of attention. Attention, waiting, silence, prayer, inspiration, grace. Any and all intellectual work requires the development of attention. It would be very hard to imagine someone who was simply incapable of paying attention, yet would be somehow some, some deeply intelligent or intellectual person. No, they, may, may not, like, they may not be paying attention to you, but they'd be, they have to be, paying, they'd be able to pay a lot of attention to something. Which is to say, an intellectual could be rude and being inattentive to your conversation, you know, in a kind of a, a social sense. Okay. But intellectual work requires the development of attention. She defines attention as consisting in suspending our thought, leaving it available, empty, and penetrable by the object. 
So it does sound like she's saying that attention is something like having an open mind, but not in the sense of an open mind where everything is just relative and you know nothing is you know objective or true. Uh, an open mind is being open to opinions and you know in a state of flux. It really, to me, suggests again this notion of of entering into a kind of a state of mind. This concept and its analogs in other writings and such concepts as the divine emptying, kenosis, patience, waiting, contemplation, and detachment. So this is strange that you know atten attention is somehow related to detachment, in the same sense that. You know, attention is distinct from, um, you know, the willpower needed for study. So it just really, at first, certainly it challenges what we think we mean when we talk about attention. So, and again, it, it is somewhat uh, high-minded here. And so I think, I think it's something like it is the induction into a pre-sagacious consciousness. Uh, into, you know, not becoming a sage, but starting to get a sense of what it feels like to be like a sage, I suppose. Um, that it starts as a semblance of sagacity. Just in these clear and distinct moments, even something like having a moment of clarity, I think that that is what Weil means by attention. In the creation of a work of art of the first order, the attention of the artist is oriented towards silence and the void. From this silence and this void descends an inspiration that is worked out in words and forms. So this is an attention that leads to a receptivity of of some kind of inspiration that you need attention to be able to receive inspiration and then you work out that inspiration into words or into forms and that is how you create a work of art but again it begins with this frankly special kind of attention so again I think it, it may seem quite separate from the TVSE kind of debate but I still think that this notion of again uh, the SC classroom of like bustling activity that it doesn't seem to I don't know how conducive it is to the artist as much as it may seem like you know it's all any kind of free imagination uh, you know whatever you want to learn about um, then do something creative about it um, every day. And then you go back again and you find something else that you're interested in and um, do something else creative about that and on and on. That there's something that is too rapid, right? And actually, frankly, repetitive about that. Um, that staying on something in a way that is longer and slower and more deliberate um, in the way that I think better characterizes TC education. So again, really to change. And change here I think means on an individual level, not someone seeking to become a change agent, 
but change in the sense of becoming um, more than what you are now or more than who you are now, right? Just this sense of growth and attainment. Really to change requires an apprenticeship, she says, and this includes a bodily component. It also requires a regime of attention. I think bodily component here it doesn't have to be that um, that involved. I think something like, you know, the bodily component of prayer, you know, on your knees with your hands pressed together, kind of thing. I, I think that's really more what she's thinking about. Um, and into the fullness of attention. School exercises have no other serious purpose than the formation of attention. Attention is the only faculty of the soul that grants access to God. School exercises use an inferior, discursive form of attention, the one that reasons. But, drawn on by a suitable method, it can prepare for the appearance in the soul of another type of attention, that which is the highest intuitive attention. Intuitive attention, in its purity, is the unique source of perfectly beautiful art, of scientific discoveries that are truly luminous and new, of philosophy that truly moves towards wisdom, of love of thy neighbor that is truly helpful. And when turned directly towards God, it constitutes true prayer. So, here, in this fabulous paragraph, dazzling, um, it's really the whole process is sort of laid out, right? That, uh, okay, sure, fullness of attention is what it's all about. But at first, school exercises, they're really truly all about the formation of attention it doesn't really it's almost inconsequential what it's about right like in in the early years you've got your subjects your topics but really um that's all just you know flavoring right it's just herbs and spices right um attention is 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 the is the thing now she's saying at first, yes, all we're doing is cultivating an inferior form of attention, which is just interesting for a philosopher to associate reason with the lower or inferior form. But, you know, first, just this kind of this rational attention that you pay attention in order to hear, learn, or understand something. You're paying attention so you know what's going on, so you know what to do. Um, but, okay, that, that, that's, that's where you start. And that's the beginning, okay? And But that's far from the end of attention in the way that she conceives it. So from there, you're paying attention, what she calls rational attention, in a way, the one that reasons. But drawn on, or you know, made to progress or grow or advance, drawn on by a suitable method, right, that... that indicating that we can coax this lower kind of basic form of attention into something greater or higher, okay? Um, in that way or through that, we can prepare for the appearance in the soul of another type of attention. So this 
higher, uh, more perfected or more beautiful and more intuitive form of attention can start to appear. So, okay, before continuing on with this quote, I, I want to make uh, an important point about attention. And the thing about, uh, I think that I should have mentioned earlier, that's why I want to backtrack now, that this kind of attention can, you know, become, in a way, self-reconstituting, right? That once you learn how to really pay attention to something, that th by being so attentive, you are going to start to become aware of or notice or recognize something that is so interesting about it, right? That paying attention becomes a way of finding something interesting in something. And so paying close attention, it becomes self-rewarding, right? Um, like if you're, not, if you're not paying attention to something, it's going to be very difficult for it to really to, to get your attention back. But if you're deeply attentive, then very likely you're going to find something interesting in in what you're paying attention to. So that is the sense that this highest form of it, of, of attention, it starts to, it, it, it's self-sustaining. That's why it isn't like a resource that you deplete, that you, I've been paying attention for so long, I can't pay attention anymore. It's this form of attention. It's hard to articulate, obviously. Um, but by really paying attention in a pure and high sense of attention by really kind of giving over so much of your mind into something else, some object outside of you, that you are so, you know, you're attentive in a devoted kind of way, um, then you're going to start getting so much more out of it. You're just, you're able to absorb uh, so much more uh, from that moment, from that experience, and that keeps you paying attention and that keeps you getting more out of it it becomes a virtuous circle um where you know attention leads to more attention rather than you know every minute that goes by you lose you know two or three percent of your total attention that i think that's just that's the lower form of attention okay that maybe that it is in a way just you get tired or exhausted from paying attention to the same thing for so long, but that there is this other thing, the highest intuitive attention. Okay, so going back to the quote here, intuitive attention in its purity is the unique source of perfectly beautiful art, of scientific discoveries that are truly luminous and new, of philosophy that truly moves towards wisdom, of love of thy neighbor that is truly helpful. And when turned directly towards God, it constitutes true prayer. This we might call attention of rare quality. Attention of rare quality. Now, the point is not that, you know, um, that this is some rare thing that only a, a small select people ever achieve. Okay, because no one can do this always. Okay, and that's not the point. Okay, no one is walking around with this constant attention of rare quality to everything. It would just be impossible to, to live that way. Okay. So the point isn't just to, you know, to achieve this, you know, sage or monk-like, you know, uh, 
openness to the entire universe at all times in all places. No one can do this always, but that's not the point. The point is that everyone, or you could say every soul, has to be invited into this. And even through schooling, conditioned into it, trained into it, right? That this discipline, um, the these earlier lower forms of attention, that they have to be imposed, frankly. Because if we don't, then we are cutting people off from ever achieving these higher forms of attention. Where where according to Simone Weil all of these most beautiful and amazing things happen. Now it's entirely possible that in a historical sense, people in, you know, lower stimulating environments, like people growing up in you know, throughout most of human history in some sort of, you know, rural outdoorsy kind of environment, uh anything, you know, from hunter gatherer to pre industrial revolution, that this kind of this what she calls this highest form this intuitive attention okay not just the rational attention but this intuitive attention it probably would have been much more of a common mainstay of people uh in the sense that it would have been easier to have this more of a quiet and supple mind but i think in the world that we have now uh, i think it is fair to say that it is something that has to be inculcated that everyone, every soul has to be invited into this. And I think that maybe there is a, there are these stages and perhaps even long periods of disagreeability of, um, you know, uh, demanding or even imposing attention before it starts to take its own root itself in the individual. Um, but nevertheless, that is the work that has to be done in education. Education cannot just say, well, there's only so much attention that any anyone is going to pay, and we have to operate within the confines of these really truncated attention spans. That we have to we have to expand attention. Okay, that's all I want to say about Simone Weil. And uh, that concludes the podcast on Lippman and Weil. Uh, again, these are um, all these comments are coming from circa 1940. So that's kind of the obvious reason of putting them together. And uh, yeah, then we'll wrap up season two. And this sort of, um, you know, this, this section of the lit review of season two is something like 1920 to 1950 roughly a kind of a 30-year period here. Um, and maybe maybe the next season will be another roughly 30-year period. Um, but again, as I mentioned, it's focused on four particular figures. Okay, well, thanks very much for listening, and be well. <laughs>